Welcome in everybody to another episode of the Dynamic Dialogue Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Danny Matranga. And in this episode, we are going to be breaking down your fitness, nutrition, health, and lifestyle questions. These are questions that you guys asked of me directly on my Instagram story. It's probably the best social media to interface with me on, although I'm also on YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, but Instagram seems to be the place where I have the best engagement and the most interaction. I get the opportunity to go deep and in detail here on the podcast. So when I throw a question box up on my story, while I will answer some of those questions on my podcast, I answer a lot of them over on Instagram too. So if you're a podcast listener and you haven't followed me on my various social medias, I strongly recommend doing that if you find this kind of content fitness Q&As, and just generally helping to guide you through your fitness journey, helpful. We have a variety of really good questions today. We're going to talk about Planet Fitness. We'll talk about gym culture, what I think about gyms like Planet Fitness and other uh, less expensive commercial gym options. We're going to talk about tips on training older clients or geriatric adults and how one might better position themselves to help that population. Or if you know somebody who's older, you maybe have a, a parent or a grandparent perhaps, and you're looking to introduce them to physical fitness. We'll talk a little bit about overtraining and what to look out for to make sure that you're not overtraining. We'll talk about sodium intake, salt as it pertains to food and calculating macros for body fat loss. We'll touch a little bit on birth control. We'll touch a little bit more as well on something known as rhabdomyolysis. That'll tie nicely into the discussion we'll have on overtraining. We'll talk about binge eating and overconsuming calories or eating more than one ought to eat as well as getting through a few more questions. So lots to cover in this episode. We will get into the first question here. This one comes from at CWH underscore on Instagram. And the question is, would you work out at Planet Fitness if there was no other options? So to put it succinctly, the answer is a resounding yes, but I do feel like I need to add a little bit of context because Planet Fitness is a very, very, let's call it, uh, contentious slash controversial fitness uh, gym chain that exists all across the United States. Uh, they were not the first gym to do this, but they were the first uh, of many gyms, let's say, to offer a standard $10 a month membership rate nationwide. So this would be a $10 flat rate access to their gym that really, really made them kind of the uh, pinnacle or centerpiece of the lowest monthly cost commercial gyms. They've been offering a $10 a month rate since their inception. And with that came some interesting decor and branding choices. They are a purple and yellow gym. It almost looks like the Los Angeles Lakers colors. But what made Planet Fitness super interesting from a branding, marketing, and messaging standpoint, is they were trying to market themselves 
to a section of the population that did not want to be surrounded by serious weightlifters, bodybuilders, and fitness enthusiasts. In fact, they actually have a built-in alarm at every gym that the front desk representative can sound off if somebody is making too much noise, slamming weights, behaving in a way that might intimidate or dissuade other members from wanting to be there. And this got them in the kind of crosshairs of quite a bit of controversy. Uh, because in trying to create what they described as a judgment-free zone, they actually ended up being relatively judgmental to other sections of fitness culture. But as far as gyms go, and as far as accessibility goes, they have a decent amount of machines. They tend to have dumbbells. Many of them do have free weights, although most don't have barbells, um, but substantially better than having nothing at all. So if there were no other options, which is the question here, I would absolutely go to Planet Fitness. And I know a lot of really good, intelligent trainers that have all of the, you know, Let's call it, they have all of the knowledge they would need to train from home or with minimal equipment, but they still choose to go to Way Planet Fitness because that's what's closest to them or it's just convenient. Uh, I worked at 24-Hour Fitness for many years and that was a gym that charged $44 a month, somewhere between $40 and $60 per month, depending on the membership rate. And it was directly across the street from a Planet Fitness, which charged $10 a month. And you could tell both gyms attracted a different clientele. However, the message or the goal, I should say, of facilities like this is to have as many members paying a monthly membership as possible who do not use the facility. That is how the majority of the revenue is generated. If gyms actually serviced all of the memberships and they actually created space and time for all of their clients to come and use the facility, they would be overcrowded, overrun, and essentially unusable. But what they're banking on is less than 10% of the members using the gym on a semi-regular basis. Now, what you'll see, interestingly enough, is many competitors like 24-Hour Fitness, Crunch Fitness, EOS Fitness, as well as LA Fitness and their affiliates like City Sports Clubs are in a race to the bottom, consistently offering lower membership prices. And this typically comes with some setbacks. You get less cleanliness, you get poor maintenance, you often don't get access to personal trainers. If you do, they tend to be not particularly of the highest quality. You don't get much customer service whatsoever. Uh, and so when in doubt, if you're looking for a gym membership close to you, I would strongly recommend opting for a locally owned gym. You tend to get better customer service. And instead of pumping money into these huge corporations that don't pay their employees well and don't particularly champion cleanliness, you could support a small locally owned gym that's probably owned by a fitness enthusiast or somebody in your community who would happily provide you with better customer service and support. But if Planet Fitness is the only option, I think it's fine. I don't have any problem with their marketing and messaging personally, although I could see how some people who are very much invested in different facets and avenues of physical culture might find it off-putting that they can't grunt or slam weights, and that just might not be a conducive workout environment for them, but there's nothing wrong with it. Okay, this question comes from at Conejo Fitness, and the question is tips on training older clients. So uh, we'll use 55 and up as the cutoff here for older adult clients. You could even go as high as 65 and up, but I'll say 55 and up. So we'll say individuals who are over the age of 55 
And for women, we'll say women who are postmenopausal. Now, many women are not postmenopausal by the age of 55, but I think it's important to acknowledge that what we're looking at here is a subsection of the population that is mature and has reached what many people would call advanced or adult age. The first thing I'd mention when it comes to working with this population is to treat them the same way you would any other human being. Now, I know that there are some specific considerations and comorbidities more closely associated with people who have advanced age. So, for example, it's not uncommon to see things like hypertension or high blood pressure or low bone density or elevated blood pressure. You will often see individuals in this population using substantially more medication than individuals who are younger. And there's always things to take into consideration when it comes to medication, whether it be statins or beta blockers, right? Things that can change heart rate or blood cholesterol or blood pressure. There's so much to think about, but a lot of young trainers fall victim to paralysis by analysis. So going back to that initial statement, Older individuals are still very much human beings. We need them to have a robust aerobic system and robust anaerobic fitness. So they need to do a certain combination of cardio and resistance training. This is generally true of all people. Now, older adults, specifically older women, have a ton to gain from resistance training. The first thing that you'll often hear from physicians, OBGYNs, women's health experts is the benefit of resistance training for bone density and staving off osteopenia or osteoporosis. But also, you get the benefit of staving off sarcopenia. This is true for men too, and this is muscle loss typically associated with age. If you can avoid muscle loss, it will make the aging process substantially easier. It makes it easier to maintain your independence, mobility, and metabolism. Muscle is such a huge component in our base metabolic rate, although it's certainly not as large a component as some of our other organs. The more muscle you have, the easier it is to move, the more independent you can be, the better your metabolism will be, the more independent you can be as you age, which is a really big deal. Uh, my dad suffers from an incurable illness that affects his mobility. He can't walk and he has a really, really hard time having any independence in his life. And this is as somebody who's only in his mid to late 60s. And having seen that firsthand, I can tell you it's really, really sad and it's really, really upsetting and it's really, really disruptive to my life, his life, and the people that care about him. So if you can do resistance training, not only to look better and feel better, but also to give yourself an insurance policy, if you will, against age-related physical decline. Sometimes you develop an illness like Parkinson's disease for which there's no cure, but sometimes people just get old and weak because they don't train. And so for many people, trainers especially, they're terrified of having their older clients lift weights. But it's so, so important. And remember, there are so many options for resistance training, or there are so many modalities in which we can uh, apply, with which we can apply resistance to the body. It doesn't have to be crazy, advanced, open chain. Remember, we have machines, we have free weights, we have body weight, we have things and modalities like TRX and kettlebells and dumbbells. We can really use all the arrows in the quiver to put a client at any age or fitness level in a position where they can succeed with resistance. For older adults, I would certainly recommend if they've never lifted before, starting with a whole body routine that emphasizes fundamentally common human movement patterns, such as gait or walking and running, squatting, which is basically bending the knees and the hips, 
lunging, which is doing this unilaterally. This is more advanced. Hinging, bending over to pick things up. Pushing, pulling, and being able to brace the core and rotate using the core and thoracic spine. So find ways that you can incorporate gait mechanics. This could be walking. This could be jogging. This could be loaded carries. Obviously incorporate squats, lunges, and hinges to train the lower body. These can be scaled back to any fitness level from a bodyweight squat to a kettlebell deadlift to a leg press. So many ways to do it. Pushing and pulling. Oftentimes you'll see limitations as far as mobility is concerned at the shoulder joint. So being mindful of selecting uh, pressing variants that are generally easy on the body. This can be a very, very effective and helpful way to do things. Um, Strongly, strongly recommend resistance training. Now, aerobic work is very, very valuable, very, very important. And it doesn't have to be hit or high intensity or even running. A client at any fitness level can start with walking, brisk walking, or jogging. But when it comes to training older adults, you can progress them very similarly to how you progress younger adults. They will progress oftentimes more slowly due to a decreased kind of availability of androgens and sex hormones. So they won't recover as fast and they won't build muscle as fast and they won't build strength as fast, but they'll still recover, still build strength and still gain muscle. I began training my girlfriend's father two weeks ago. We started training three times a week. Every training session is total body. He's 60 years old. He's never worked out before. And after just two weeks, he's already recovering faster than he was in week one. He's already seeing changes in his waistline and his physical conditioning. And you can really build up quite slowly. And this is somebody who's never trained before. So something I would encourage you to do is to go slow, take it one session at a time, meet the client where they are at, and remember that outside of a little bit slower Uh, recovery, a little bit slower ability to build muscle and a little bit slower ability to build strength. As long as you are training the client through a range of motion that is accessible to them, meaning they have control of the range of motion. They don't have to squat ass to grass. They can squat as low as they can comfortably. They're controlling the eccentric and concentric portion of their lifts. And they're doing a little bit of aerobic work, spreading that out across those movement patterns. You have all you need to do you, have, you know all you need to know to train older clients. The hardest part might be relating to them, but it's very important in the fitness space or in really any business that you get to know your clients, you get to know your coworkers, you get to know the people that you work with. So, you know, in between sets, when you're allowing them to rest, recover, and hydrate, get to know them, get to know what they value, get to know what they're interested in. And oftentimes you'll have trainers who are substantially younger than their clients. And that can make for a little bit of a, hey, what, what are we going to connect on here? But truth is, you'll probably find you have a lot more in common because these people have so much lived experience. And that is a really, really big difference maker. Just don't forget that despite there being a variance in when you were born, there isn't too much of a variance in your humanity. You'll have a lot that you can connect on and connecting with people makes the training experience better. What's going on, guys? Coach Danny here, taking a break from the episode to tell you about my coaching company, Core Coaching Method, and more specifically, our one-on-one, fully tailored online coaching program. My online coaching program has kind of been the flagship for Core Coaching Method for a while. Of course, we do have PDF programming and we have app-based programming, but if you want a truly tailored one-on-one experience with a coach like myself or a member of my coaching team, someone who is certified, somebody who has multiple years of experience working with clients in person online, somebody who is licensed to provide a macro nutrition plan, somebody who is actually good at communicating with clients because they've done it for years, whether that be a 
be via phone call, email, text, right? This one-on-one coaching program is really designed to give you all the support you need with custom training designed for you, whether you're training from home, the gym, around your limitations and your goals. Nothing cookie cutter here, as well as easy to follow macronutrition programs that are non-restrictive. You'll get customized support directly from your coach's email or they'll text you or they'll WhatsApp you. We'll find the communication medium that best supports your goals as well as provides you with the accountability and the expertise you need to succeed, as well as biofeedback monitoring, baked-in accountability support, and all of the stuff that you need from your coach when you check in. We keep our rosters relatively small so that we can make sure you get the best support possible. But you can apply today by going over to corecoachingmethod.com, selecting the online coaching option, and if we have spots available, We'll definitely reach out to you to see if you're a good candidate. And if we don't, we'll put you on a waiting list, but we'll be sure to give you the best shot at the best coaching in the industry. So head over to corecoachingmethod.com and apply for one-on-one coaching with me and my team today. Taking a little break from the action here to tell you about our amazing partner, Seed. Seed makes the best probiotic supplement on the market, bar none. I'm very confident with that because I think that the probiotic space and the gut health space in general is filled with people who have no idea what they're talking about or who are looking to make a buck. This isn't to say your gut health isn't important. In fact, it's probably one of the most important and most intriguing developments we have seen in modern medicine and modern physiology. Our relationship with our guts is critical. It's crucial. And taking care of that by eating a lot of different plants, a lot of different fruits and vegetables, getting a diverse array of fiber and resistant starches can go a long way, but so can supplementing with a high quality probiotic. Seed makes the best probiotic on the market with 53.6 billion active fluorescent units. These are organisms that are going to be alive and helping transfer a variety of different benefits to the human host. All these things are actually proven to work in humans. These strains work in humans, not rodents. Seed is not uh, cheaping out here by providing you with any random strain. They're providing you with strains that help with digestive health, gut immunity, gut barrier integrity, dermatological health, cardiovascular health, micronutrient synthesis, as well as many other things. They're vegan, gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, nut-free, shellfish-free, so very friendly for those of you who may have a variety of different allergies and who are looking for a supplement you can take that can enhance a variety of different things. I have a very, very... uh, good track record over many, many years of having to deal with things like eczema and having to deal with things like psoriasis on occasion, especially when the weather changes. And I swear to you, since I started taking seed, I have noticed substantially less of that. And there's four strains included in seed shown to help with things like atopic dermatitis. So there you go. Not to mention the plethora of strains for the health of your gut. If you're looking to take your gut health to the next level, you can go to seed.com. Subscribe for their daily symbiotic. You can take one or two a day. You can share it with a partner. Sometimes you can do that. Um, But it goes a long way. It's the best probiotic supplement on the market. I absolutely love it. And you can use the code Danny15 to save. Back to the show. What's going on, guys? Taking a break from the show to tell you about our amazing partners over at Elemental Labs. Elemental Labs makes a flagship electrolyte product known as LMNT Recharge. Recharge is amazing. It's got bioavailable forms of sodium, potassium, and magnesium, which can really help you train, contract your tissues, and get hydrated. 
I love having it in the morning before my fasted training because oftentimes I wake up without an appetite, but I want something in my stomach so I'm not flat, I can get a pump, and I can get hydrated in the gym and still perform my best. I also love to sip on my recharge when I'm on the golf course or especially when I'm in the sauna. The more you sweat, the more likely it is that you will need to replace valuable electrolytes like sodium, magnesium, and potassium. And while if you have high blood pressure, you might not necessarily be a candidate for electrolyte supplementation, many athletes and active adults need more salt and more electrolytes in their diet than they currently get, especially if they sweat, live in warm climates, or humid climates. I found a bunch of different ways to use my recharge, but like I said, I love using it before and during my training. Whenever I do something active outside or my sweat rate increases or when I'm in the sauna. And you can actually try it completely for free. All their best flavors that are totally free of sugar have only 10 calories. They're sweetened naturally and they come in amazing flavors like raspberry salt, orange salt, citrus salt. My favorite is the mango habanero or mango chili and the lemon habanero, which I take in the sauna. There's flavors for everybody, and you can check them out by going to drinklmnt slash coachdanny. They'll send you every single flavor in an individual packet. You can try them out completely free. Just pay shipping. Drinklmnt.com slash coachdanny. Get your sample pack today completely for free. Just pay shipping. Back to the show. This question comes from Weight Loss Confessionals. And the question is, overtraining, is it different for everybody? What are the cues and when to rest? So yes, overtraining is different for everybody. The longer you've been training and the more you've trained, the less likely you are to experience overtraining from low to moderate training volumes and low to moderate training intensities. The newer you are, the easier it is to experience symptoms of overtraining. That's kind of the obvious and most basic stuff. You probably already knew that. Now, there are certain populations that have unique responses to overtraining. Anybody with comorbidities or secondary pathologies uh, will exhibit overtraining symptoms differently. So something I've noticed, people who suffer from depression and anxiety will be more depressed and more anxious when they're overtrained. People who suffer from immune dysregulation or immune system suppression will get sick more frequently when they overtrain. Uh, women who have a reproductive cycle that is substantially different than men who do not have a reproductive cycle will typically lose their period or have a dysregulated period when they overtrain if they overtrain for too long. Men will f- have a sexual or reproductive system response that usually looks like reduced testosterone, reduced libido, reduced ability to get or maintain an erection. Outside of that, a lot of the typical cues that we look for when we're trying to determine whether or not somebody is overtrained, like elevated morning heart rate, uh, irritability, decreased training output, decreased desire to train, those tend to be pretty consistent. Now, one thing I will say is I do think most people don't suffer from overtraining so much as it is that they suffer from under-recovering, which is to say they're not training too hard. They're just not putting enough energy and effort into their recovery. And I know what you're probably thinking. Well, I take my protein. I take my creatine. I, you know, do my stretches. But recoverability is oftentimes, uh, you know, minimally influenced by supplements and more influenced by external stressors and total stressors. This would be your allostatic load, meaning lifestyle stressors and sleep. So if you're training insanely hard and you get crappy sleep for a week, you will be more likely to 
reach a point where you start start to see some of these symptoms of overtraining than if you're training insanely hard but sleeping nine hours a night. So remember, guys, overtraining is really often just under recovering in disguise. And I do think that most people stand to benefit from very challenging, intentional training done relatively close to failure with resistance with good form through a full range of motion. You just need to make sure that you are recovering. And remember, like I said, certain things such as age can influence recovery. So you have to pay attention to those signals. You have to pay attention to how your body is responding, but excessive soreness, not hitting any PRs, going backwards with your training, losing the desire to train, um, having achy joints, being irritable, irritated, having a highly uh, elevated resting heart rate are all signs that you could be overdoing it in the long run. Next question comes from Adrian Choff. And this question is, how important is sodium intake when it comes to calculating macros for fat loss? And the answer is simple. It's actually not important at all because sodium contains zero calories. However, Sodium intakes vary quite a bit based on population. I'm not a doctor, so take everything I've said so far and everything I will say with a grain of salt, but sodium intake can be pretty tightly correlated with blood pressure. And since many American adults live with chronically elevated blood pressure or hypertension, it's recommended that they monitor their sodium very closely. And this is a pretty pervasive and ubiquitous tone amongst many physicians, practitioners, and healthcare workers. So people who pay attention to their health are likely mindful of their sodium intake, or at least they ought to be, especially if they're hypertensive. But for people who are very active, who sweat a lot, who live in humid climates or hot climates, or who compete in endurance sports, your sodium needs are going to be elevated, meaning you will need more than the average person. Now, most resources you'll see will recommend less than three grams a day of sodium, but for active adults, you might need more. Now, this will not influence your caloric intake directly, but it could indirectly. Now, heavily salted, highly, highly hyper-processed foods, these are often called hyper-palatable or hyper-palatable foods, are easy to overconsume. And so if you give yourself unlimited bandwidth and unlimited sodium intake and you choose to eat a lot of hyper-processed foods, you might find that you gain more body fat by virtue of being in a calorie surplus because many of the foods in the traditional Western diet that are high in sodium are also high in associative calories. And because sodium leads to water retention, the more sodium you ingest, the more water you retain, the more you will probably trick the scale. You could be in a calorie deficit, up your sodium a lot, lose body fat, hold on to water weight, and be weight stable, not see your weight change. That could really trick you. But sodium can also help with weight loss. If you eat in a calorie deficit, focusing on minimally processed, whole single ingredient foods most of the time, uh, and you use sodium as a seasoning to enhance the flavor of things like lean protein and vegetables, it can actually make your food more palatable in this would be a good way to increase palatability because it's calorie free. Most seasonings and most uh, spices are. Uh, so sodium can actually be your friend as it pertains to fat loss. You just need to be able to parse out, am I eating too much sodium and thus holding on to water? Am I not getting enough sodium to be hydrated, have adequate electrolyte balance to train hard? 
Um, am I removing too much sodium because I've removed a lot of processed foods? So maybe I need to add some more in. We see this a lot with the keto population and then they develop something known as the keto flu, which is oftentimes just dehydration from wildly reduced carbohydrate and sodium intake. So sodium is worth paying attention to. It's not something I'd worry about too much uh, unless you're hypertensive or you have a physician who's told you to monitor it. I ingest sodium with most of my food. I salt my food and I also take an electrolyte supplement before I train. I drink it every single morning. I drink LMNT's electrolytes uh, because I like to get sodium, potassium, and magnesium into my system early in the day with a bunch of water to help me get hydrated before I am caffeinated. Remember, if you've been following the podcast for a while, I drink a lot of water in the morning before I ever let the coffee or the pre-workout or the tea or the caffeine of any kind hit my system. And my reason for doing this is simple. I believe that it is in my best interest to hydrate before I take in additional stimulants or, you know, diuretics like caffeine. So sodium can be your friend, doesn't contain calories, but it can lead to water retention. So it's very, very important that you are mindful of approximately where your intake is. And if you are hypertensive or have elevated blood pressure, you will likely need to make special adjustments to your sodium intake so as to make sure that you're not taking in too much. Okay, next question comes from Destiny D underscore. And the question is, is it true that women on birth control see significantly less gains? Uh, I would say that this is not true. I have not seen a ton of literature to support the usage of hormonal or non-hormonal contraceptives wildly adjusting somebody's response to resistance training uh, and their ability to develop muscle. Now, could it influence this? Absolutely, right? Because many hormonal forms of birth control are going to adjust the hormonal environment in women. And in the short and long term, that could influence how much muscle somebody gained because you are adjusting their hormones. I just don't know if it's enough to qualify as significantly less gains. Uh, A great resource for this is the Stronger by Science podcast with Greg Knuckles and Eric Trexler. I've heard them discuss this before in great detail. Uh, I've also discussed this with Lyle McDonald on my podcast multiple times, looking to unpack the relationship between progesterone, estrogen, uh, you know, even things like non-hormonal intrauterine devices or non-hormonal IUDs that are in uh, essentially just going into the uterus, right? These are basically object-based forms of contraception that don't contain a hormone. And what what could these do to influence hypertrophy? So there's a lot to discuss here. But at the risk of you know being too brief, I would say I don't think the likelihood of birth control impacting your gains uh, in a huge noticeable way uh, is high for most women. Could some women be particularly susceptible and could some women be particularly, let's say, sensitive to birth control? Uh, it's very possible. But again, this is a question probably for your physician, and I would look into those other resources I mentioned because those individuals know even more than I do. Now, I've trained so many women over the years, many of them on birth control, many of them not on birth control, many of them on non-hormonal birth control, and what I can say is I haven't seen any consistent themes as it pertains to the blunting of the hypertrophy response from resistance training and birth control. 
right? Like I have not seen a lifter who's on birth control or a series of lifters on the same birth control consistently struggle with hypertrophy. I do tend to find that women both on and off birth control can gain muscle at a pretty regular rate as long as they're training hard and recovering properly. Okay, this question comes from Brianna Michelle Smith, and it is, have you ever had rhabdo? Rhabdo is excessive protein breakdown. The actual name of the uh, condition is rhabdomyolysis, myo meaning muscle, lysis meaning to split or break. And this is a severe response to overtraining that is often indicated by a dark colored urine rich in nitrogen from excessive breakdown of nitrogenous muscle tissue. So you have a lot of nitrogenous waste in the urine. It will be a dark brown orange color. And you often see this from individuals who over-exercise heavily, do ultra marathon running, are chronically dehydrated. It is extremely rare to see in the general population. And in 10 years of training clients, I have never had one, knock on wood, develop rhabdomyolysis. So I've never experienced it. It's very unlikely that you will experience it. But if you are not taking your your recovery seriously and you are training well beyond your uh, capacity uh, at the current moment, in theory, you could be increasing your risk of developing acute rhabdomyolysis. But again, I am no expert here. It does seem to be more prevalent in the CrossFit community because oftentimes non-lifting relatively low fitness adults find themselves in hyper-competitive situations in CrossFit boxes where they feel they have to push it to the max and they end up overdoing it. And this can lead to the development of rhabdo via excessive breakdown of muscle tissue, generally correlated with over-exercising. But this is very, very rare, not something that I would be overly concerned with if you are healthy. Um, It's out there, it could happen, but I wouldn't overly focus on it. Okay, this question comes from Reka Ziklai, and the question is, tips for overcoming binge eating. Uh, my first tip would be to eliminate or reduce your exposure to the foods you tend to binge on in your home environment. So if you always binge on chips, don't bring chips home. If you always binge on cookies, don't bring cookies home. But what I've found is typically adults who binge eat know that they shouldn't be doing it and they struggle with the emotional or psychological component. So seeking out a psychological professional or therapist to discuss the triggers uh, and the kind of uh, psychological underpinning and reward mechanisms that drive this behavior is way, way, way more uh, valuable than just hoping it goes away and can be even more helpful than just you know, setting up your environment to minimize binges. I binge on occasion and they're not huge binges, but you know, there will be, you know, I'll give this example the other day. My girlfriend had her niece and nephew over. They brought cookies. We bought cookies for them. And I ended up eating like 10 Oreos and like four cookies. So in that night, I ate 14 cookies. That's a lot of cookies. Um, you know, it's almost 800, 900 calories worth of cookies. And that might not classify as a binge. Uh, but it's certainly consuming more of something that I wanted to. And I did that in large part due to the fact that it was right in front of me and I really wanted it in that moment. Um, and so normally I don't keep those objects or items in the house. So I do not have that problem, which is interesting, right? It's interesting to see um, how environment design plays a big role in this. So when it comes to binging, I would definitely recommend seeking counsel from a psychological professional, as well as adjusting. I say this is if you binge chronically, as well as adjusting your environment to reduce the opportunity to binge in the future. All right, guys, that does it for today's episode. I want to thank you so much for tuning in and bearing with me. I'm dealing with some familial stuff right now that just 
is commanding a large portion of my attention. And the podcast is really, really important to me. So I want to thank you all for tuning in, listening. If you haven't yet left a rating and review on your podcast servicer, whether that be Apple Podcasts or Spotify, those help a ton. The podcast grows so much faster when you are all leaving regular reviews. So if you have that time, one to two minutes, and you haven't left one yet, please do that. It makes a huge difference for me. I really appreciate it. And again, thank you for listening. I will catch you on the next one.